0: Esther, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. You can find it in your pew Bibles on page 775. 775. Esther, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, The Xerxes, who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes, and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days... He displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people, from from the least to the greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother-of-pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality, By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. These are the holy words of God. May all who hear them give glory to his majesty. Today, we begin our study through the book of Esther. But before we stick our toes in the water, I I want us to take a step backwards from the shore just for a moment so we can gain a full view of what we're diving into. Esther is a unique book in a couple of ways. The first is that the book is titled After a Woman. Only one other book in the Bible does this. Second, and even more peculiar, is that Esther is the only book in the Bible that doesn't reference God anywhere. Not by name, nor by title. In fact, religion isn't even mentioned, though there is a slightest hint of God as one religious practice briefly shows up. This being the case, some theologians have looked down upon this book. Listen to what the great reformer Martin Luther had to say concerning Esther. I am so great an enemy to Esther that I wish it had not come to us at all, for it has too many heathen unnaturalities. Now, I'm a fan of Martin Luther, and I'm grateful for everything that he did for the church. But the man was not always right. Thankfully, Esther has come to us, for it truly is a valuable book to the church. And I would go further to argue that the the author purposely left out any mention of God in order to magnify a certain aspect of how God commonly deals with man. But we'll have to journey through this story to figure that out. Now, Esther was written as a historical narrative. Facts of history are discussed. The things we will read about, they really did happen. Even though this is the case, the author controlled which facts to put in and which facts to leave out. In other words, while the account is true, This narrative is guided towards an intended purpose of the author. For instance, King Xerxes was a major player in world history. His victories and defeats in battle are legendary. Yet that part of Xerxes' life seems to be of little importance to the writer. Instead, The author wanted to focus more on the king's relationship with his wives. For it is there that the real story happens. In essence, while Xerxes was off making a great name for himself, making his name renowned throughout the world, there was this little side story that barely registers as significant on the world stage. Yet in the eternal scheme of things, this side story has far greater impact. And as we read through this book, we we need to realize that this story is working on many different levels. There is the shallow end of the lake where the historical facts rise to the surface. You will read about banquets and marriages and plots of wicked men and the honoring of heroes while these events really did take place they are just a small part to a bigger story for as we wade deeper we find that that greater story that is underneath a tale where one can grasp god's purpose in allowing such historical events to take place as he fulfills his promise to rescue his people from exile and return them to the promised land. And finally, as we swim out farther, past the point where your toes can touch the bottom, we will see types and shadows of the greatest story of them all. In many ways, Esther points to that grand meta narrative of man's fall into sin, and God's redemptive work through his son Jesus upon the cross, it is at this deeper level that we need to anchor ourselves, for it is there that the voice of this supposedly absent God speaks to us the loudest. If we choose to stay in the shallows at that first level, Esther becomes a very moralistic book. We will begin to judge certain characters as good or evil based on their behaviors, whether or not we think that they are praiseworthy or detestable, when in fact every character in this story has their moral flaws. As such a legalistic approach is taken, God will be silent, and there will not be much, there will not be much gained from our reading. So I'm asking you to suspend any moral judgments on these characters, for that is missing the point. You'll see heroes doing things you disagree with. And you will see despicable men playing the roles of champions, doing the upright thing. But if you wade with me into that deep water, I promise you that God will become very evident, and the purpose of Esther will become strikingly clear. <clears throat> With that said, let's begin swimming. Esther chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes, and the nobles of the provinces were present. It was the year 483 BC, the setting, the capital city of Susa in Persia. The Jews had been in exile for over 100 years now, yet many had already returned home half a century prior to rebuild the temple. Thanks to the legal decree of Cyrus, the grandfather of this Xerxes, the Jews were able to return to Jerusalem and reestablish themselves as a people in their homeland. If you recall our study from the book of Daniel, then Cyrus should be a familiar name to you. Yet not all the Jews returned home. Many were comfortable in their new cities, for they were born into captivity and had never known their homeland. Ethnically, they were Jewish, but culturally, they became somewhat Persian. You see, though they were free to go home, They were free to rebuild their temple. They were still under judgment of God. They were not yet a sovereign nation, but under the control of a foreign king. And King Xerxes was not a man to be trifled with. From history, we we know this to be Xerxes I. He came to the throne at the age of 32 And during his first two years as king, his power was challenged twice. Once by Egypt, and once by Babylon. Insurrections were mounted, only to be swiftly and forcefully shut down by this new king. In fact, the Babylonian rebellion angered Xerxes so much that he melted down their golden statue of their god Marduk as a punishment. To say the least, Xerxes was a capable and violent leader. Being war-hungry, this king desired to achieve victory where his father had failed. He schemed to mount a military campaign against Greece. In fact, this is the very reason for this banquet that we just read about in Esther. History records for us that this feast for the nobles and the military leaders was an attempt to gain allies and to discuss battle strategies for expanding the empire. In order to demonstrate how gracious he could be to those who sided with him, Xerxes decided that for six months he would put into public display all of his riches. Look at verse 4. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Now this is not something that was typically done by kings at this time. For half a year, Xerxes brought into public view his possessions, showing off his magnificence. And we know that Xerxes had treasures in abundance. It is said that more than a hundred years later, when Alexander the Great finally defeated the Persians and entered into the palace of Susa, that even he was dazzled by the massive amounts of gold and silver that were hoarded there. He found roughly 1,200 tons of gold and silver bullion and another 270 tons of gold coins. That is Fort Knox-esque. Xerxes wanted the world to know that he was rich, and that he was glorious. He needed to prove to his generals and to the leaders of those 127 provinces that joining him in this war against Greece would be a financial boon to them. Yet a demonstration of his magnificence and wealth wouldn't be enough. They needed to see that he was generous as well. Hence, a seven-day feast was in order. Look at verses 5 through 8. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of of the king's palace, for all the people from the least to the greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. In the ancient Near East, the climate was hot and dry. Enclosed gardens, they offered shade and refreshment, and even entertainment. Often, exotic animals and plants were, were brought from afar to be put on display. The Persians called these gardens paradida. The Greeks pronounced that word paradisos, and is where we get our English word, paradise. What about a zoo? A zoo, yeah. Of the animals. It's recorded that Xerxes himself made extensive renovations to the city of Susa. So much so much of what we read in these verses probably was a result of his work. Owning such a, owning such a garden demonstrated his opulence. Blue and white linens, purple material, marble pillars. Couches made of gold and silver? In fact, the the Greek historian Herodotus records for us that these sofas, they weren't just plated with gold and silver, but they were made of solid gold and solid silver. And Xerxes offered to his guests uniquely crafted golden goblets to drink their wine. This is a host who is gracious. His graciousness outshone the rest. And from verses 7 and 8, we read that the wine flowed freely. Each guest was allowed to drink in his own way. What is meant by this is that there were no rules. Normally, at such feasts, guests could only drink when the king had raised his goblet. Xerxes set aside that rule for seven days, offering to the people as much to drink as they desired. And wine in Susa wasn't cheap. It had to be imported in from the different regions of the empire. So to say that King Xerxes spared no expense is an understatement. And it wasn't just the men who were having a good time. Look at verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. We are now introduced to another character in the story, Queen Vashti. It's not sure if that was her real name or not. In Hebrew, the word sounds like beautiful woman. The closest Persian word is vahista, which means best. Most likely, the author is calling the queen by his own little nickname in order to emphasize her beauty. We won't get into the details of this this week about Queen Vashti, but it should be known that a a good time was being had by all, both men and women. King Xerxes lavishly took care of not only his generals and vassal rulers, but their wives as well the splendor of the king was on display and it was glorious to behold. Now, if I were a modern historian and I was reading this story for the first time, I would think that this war council of Xerxes was was just a setup to the great battle against the Greeks that would later ensue. Yet to the author... This was just the first piece in a row of dominoes that was heading off in a different direction. The writer could care less about Xerxes' great failure against the Greeks. Instead, he he wants to show you the power and majesty of the king who would soon determine the fate of the Jewish people. Xerxes was the most powerful man in the world. A man who could bless you greatly. A man who could ruin you in an instant. We've seen what absolute power can do to a person. Adolf Hitler in Germany. Pol Pot in Cambodia. Kim Jong-un in North Korea. Even in America, where there's supposed to be the balance of power... We have seen our own fair share of corruption within government. Yet our author could care less whether or not Xerxes was abusing his power. That doesn't matter to him. Instead, he wants to paint for you a picture of what pure strength and glory looks like. He wants to show you a king who is both fierce and gracious, at the same time. He wants you to see an almighty Lord giving a banquet for his people in a garden where the wine flows freely and all are welcome to come from the least to the greatest. Xerxes is the man of the hour. Yet he is just a shadow something far, far greater. Isaiah 25, verses 1 through 8. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness, you have done marvelous things. Things planned long ago. You have made the city a heap of rubble. The fortified town a ruin. The foreigners stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honor you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall, and like the heat of the desert. You silence the uproar of foreigners, as heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is stilled. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces, he will remove the disgrace of his people. From all the earth, the Lord has spoken. By taking you to this royal banquet of King Xerxes, the author of Esther directs your attention to a greater king who gives a grander banquet. The Lord, your God, is a ruthless warrior who vanquishes his foes he pummels cities and fortified towns are seen no more he is the one to be feared above all else he is the one who can ruin you in an instant yet he is also a magnificent king who prepares a feast for all and all nations from the least To the greatest are welcome to come. He is the one who can bless you greatly. More than that, the the riches that he offers to his people is eternal life. He wipes away the shame and the tears of those he loves, granting them forgiveness by his grace. He does all of this through his Son. You see, Christ is a better king. He gave better food and better wine when he offered up his body and blood on the cross. And Christ will not limit the viewing of his riches to his six-month display. Rather, he lavishes upon his people an eternal home in the new heavens and the new earth. And Jesus sets a better table filled with the fruit of the tree of life. The garden of Xerxes is vastly inferior to the orchard of our Lord. For those who repent of their sins and trust in Christ for their forgiveness, they will reap the benefits of Jesus' victory at the cross. You don't have to go to war to earn your rewards. You have already received riches in Jesus. For salvation does not come by works, but by grace alone, through faith alone. Trust in Christ, and you will be saved. Esther has given you a small glimpse of, Into the throne room of God. It has given you a peek at God's splendor and majesty. Trust in Him, for He is both powerful and generous. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, it speaks truths to us at the deepest levels. Through it, we we learn of your power and your majesty. And in it, we, we see your son, Jesus, who died on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins. Fill us now with your Holy Spirit as we try to bring glory to your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.